This is the Future of HR Podcast, Episode 16. Hey there, welcome to the best of 2022 Future of HR Podcast episode. That's right, instead of hearing from one amazing HR executive or thought leader on this episode, you'll get the opportunity to hear from 11 of the brightest minds in our field. Since launching the podcast on October 4th, we've had the honor of listening to and learning from 15 terrific HR and thought leaders. I'm truly grateful to every guest who's come on the podcast and share their career journey, insights, and advice on how to take our field to the next level. I'm also truly grateful for you, the listener. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Thank you for your support on LinkedIn and for all have written in to me to let me know that you find the podcast insightful, inspiring, and impactful. Over my career, I've been blessed to have some amazing mentors, mentors who've cared enough to give me tough feedback, career advice, and projects that have helped me grow as a leader. I created the Future of HR podcast to do my part to ensure the next generation of HR leaders get the opportunity to be mentored, coached, and guided by the best and the brightest. From all the feedback I've received over the past 15 episodes, I believe we're off to a great start, which is why it was so incredibly difficult to select the best moments, guests, and insights from 2022. So who can you expect to hear from in this episode? Kent Keener, former CHRO turned executive coach. Holly Tyson, chief people officer at Cushman Wakefield. Mark Efron, president of Talent Strategy Group. Molly Nogler, SVP and chief learning officer at PepsiCo. Angela Lane, VP Global Talent, AbbVie. Alan Church, former SVP Global Talent, PepsiCo. Suzanne Myers, CHRO COSA. Jim Shanley, The Shanley Group, James Fripp, Chief Equity Inclusion Officer at Yum Brands, and Gotti, VP Global Talent, Bumble, Dr. Stephen Hunt, author of Talent Tectonics. All right, that's enough of me. Let's get into the future of HR's Best of 2022 episode. First up is Ken Keener, former NYSOR CHRO turned executive coach. In our first episode, Ken laid out what it takes for HR to drive change and influence the business. I'm thankful to Ken for being my first guest. He's a world-class executive coach and true friend. And not only does a strong HR leader know how to bring new solutions, new technologies, or new strategies to the table, but our true leadership is tested by our ability to lead the change associated with it. So we can mm. so many times have a great idea for what could help address a people challenge in an organization. But if we're not attending to and thinking very strategically about how do we mobilize commitment, create consensus on the need, define a compelling vision for what success could look like, if we're not really bringing leadership along with our expertise, we leave so much value on the table. So it was moments like that that really taught me, okay, not only do you have to have a good solution, but you have to have a great change management strategy as well. When I went to be a director at American Electric Power, I learned through failure. We had a, we, when I say we, unfortunately, it was we, the human resource group, had a beautiful vision about how performance management could be better. And we decided to, in, I won't, we didn't think of it this way, but inflict it on the organization in a very rapid pace without key stakeholder input. And it's what you'd call the classic picture of organ reject. And so many, it was the one of the places where I learned the sale is in the development, not in the presentation. You know, mm. There's a place where 
the people that you're serving need to have a voice, need to have a shaping influence on what you're bringing forward so they can actually internalize it and say, this is good. This is so good. I would do this without human resources because it adds value to my operations or my business. Next, in episode three, Holly Tyson, Chief People Officer at Cushman Wakefield, explains why it takes courage to speak truth to power. Holly's one of my mentors, and if you haven't listened to this episode, I encourage you to check it out. And you mentioned speaking truth to power. Tell us about how you approach that. It sure does take courage. But you know what? I've realized, gosh, part of our jobs, and you know this similarly for you as a talent person, part of our job is to be students of what makes people successful, right? And my insights, both from my own experience, as well as from watching, developing, coaching, promoting, terminating senior executives is there are patterns that you see, right? And while if I were to look holistically at the number of people I've sat across from and had to let go from however many companies I've been at, I've let more people go for not doing things than for doing things. And, you know, say more about that. I mean, whenever you're up at bat, there's a chance you're going to strike out, but there's also a chance that you're going to get a home run. And that the coaching that I give a lot of executives, including to myself, is go down swinging. Don't get walked because you know what? You get walked enough, you're not going to be in the batting rotation anymore. And we're all here for a reason, right? I mean, we were all hired for a reason. If you find yourself in an organization or find yourself in a situation where your voice is too loud, your voice is too strong, your voice is too different, then you're not in the right place. And I've had to make, I've had to make decision, a decision on that as, as well in my career. I can speak truth to power and I've been in a place where um, that, that truth wasn't welcome or that, that candor was not appreciated. And sometimes you have to find the place where your talents are recognized. So, and that, but that takes courage, but it takes a lot of courage. You know, the other piece I would say is ultimately the best leaders seek out the advice from the people who tell them what they don't want to hear because they know that's going to make them better. But that takes courageous leaders to do that as well. And not all leaders are courageous. You know, some leaders want to be, they want to be surrounded by yes people. And that's just the reality. Ultimately, they're not necessarily going to be as successful or not successful at all. But, you know, the best leaders who I would argue are the ones you really want to work with are those who are going to constantly be learning. They're going to be taking a beginner's mindset. They're going to be seeking advice and guidance. And they're going to seek out the people who are going to tell them not only what they want to hear, but what they don't want to hear and what they need to hear. In episode four, Mark Efron discusses his advice for aspiring external consultants, what Marshall Goldsmith taught him, and what differentiates the best HR leaders. We also went deep on his career and why he wrote One Page Talent Management. This episode is a must-listen for fans of Mark and his work. What advice would you have for someone who's starting out and says, you know, I want to do my own consulting company or go out on my own? Yeah, my, my first piece of advice is typically don't do it. Because here's where most people say, I want to be a consultant. What they mean is they want to do fun work. 
Well, that's great. That's about 40% of the job. 60% is getting the fun work. And most people are not self-promoters. Most people don't want to write a newsletter, make a phone call, show up at a conference and try and meet 100 people. Most people don't want to do that. And, and that's really what separates the people who make it in consulting from the folks who don't. Marshall Goldsmith, who has been hugely influential in my life in many ways, gave me the initial guidance around that. I met him when I was at Hewitt. And Marshall asked me this question that just at the time amazed me, which was, Mark, I'm trying to be uh, more something like I'm trying to be more successful as a consultant. What can you do to help me be more successful as a consultant? It was like, hold it. He's asking me to help him be more like that's both egotistical and brilliant. And I'm like, sure, I'll help you. It's like, okay. People actually do want to help you. Why don't you just ask them for more help? Don't be a Marshall also said, why would I not tell people about the stuff I do? It's great stuff. Those two things I've channeled a lot. One is, yeah, just ask people to help. And if you're proud of your ideas, you should be wanting to shout them from every rooftop. But circling back, most folks who want to go into consulting don't want to do that. They don't feel comfortable. Oh, my good work should speak for itself. Not in this noisy environment. It's not. Right. Kudos to Marshall for giving you that advice because people do actually want to help, whether it's for someone's career, a business, a project, people feel good about doing that. And so I think it's asking is a really good way to get that help. And, uh, and most people are happy to help. help. Yeah. Right. I most mean, people are happy to do it. Even look at this. You're helping me. You're promoting me. I'm helping you. You're, you're getting your podcast going. We're both happy to do it. Neither of us is like, oh, crap. Yeah, I'll spend an hour doing it. It's like, cool. Let's do it. And I think most people bring that attitude when somebody uh, asks for some, some help. So what differentiates the best HR leaders from the rest? Yeah, I would suggest a few things. First, let's flip our previous conversation on its head. They truly do both know and love business. I think that's a, a baseline for anything. They are brilliant at building positive relationships in a 360 fashion. So they, their boss loves them, respects them. Their peers at least get along with them. Maybe they're not best buddies, but they get along and their staff respects them. And again, we're not looking for love. We're looking for, yeah, he's a good boss. Maybe not perfect, but you know, sheer he cares about me. They give me good developmental opportunities, et cetera. So you're building positive relationships in a, a 360 fashion and you have a drive to get stuff done. I mean, those three things together, uh, and actually let me add four, sorry. Um, you're good at something. Meaning, if you're in HR, you're really good at comp, or you're really good at DEI, you're really good at being a business partner, but you've established functional credibility. So somebody says, oh, yeah, they're really good at this, therefore, I'll give them a chance at doing something else. So you love the business, you develop some great functional capability, you built the relationships that matter, and then you use all those great platforms to actually get a bunch of stuff done, um, which to my high performer's mindset means you're going to work a lot, you're going to sacrifice, and you're going to always recognize you're competing against the, the output of others. Next in Episode 5, Molly Nogler, Chief Learning Officer at PepsiCo, shares her point of view on the future of learning and why it's all about mass personalization. If you're in the L&D space, this is your episode. Tell us more about how you see learning development changing over the past few years, where the field's going, and how that impact is actually scaling. Yeah, I think you're seeing a lot of the same impacts as you're seeing in other parts of life where technology has a much, much bigger role than it used to, especially after COVID. So what COVID did for learning 
on a positive note is to get us all over the hump of thinking that online learning is subpar, right, to in-person learning, or that you can't possibly teach leadership or soft skills, right, in an online environment. And I'm not the person here telling you that in-person learning is over like that. I don't think that's true at all. But I think when you're looking to, as I said before, about customized programs, like get a similar skill set into as many brains and hands as possible, that there's nothing beats the scale you can get doing a class on Zoom, for example, or some other learning platform. I think you're also seeing and learning this trend of mass customization and mass personalization. So we're seeing that right as consumers and have been for a long time. But what's for for my career, for my skill set, for my dreams, for my needs, even in my current role, what's the exact right learning package for me? And technology really supports not only the delivery of that, like learner experience platforms, you can learn anytime, anywhere, any device. They use AI and machine learning to understand you better and your, your learning behavior better and give you content that's relevant. But also the data that we now have on the workforce and being able to target messaging to learners much more specifically, like we know where you are and your background and that sort of thing. And so I think there's more opportunities to personalize and more opportunities to use technology to scale learning and get more impact. In episode six, Angela Lane, VP Talent at AbbVie, and I sat down to talk about what it takes to grow your career and manage your reputation. If you have not checked out her website, theedgeyouneed.com, you should. It's a great resource for managing your career. Because we all have self-doubt when we take on these big roles. If you don't have any self-doubt, if you're not a little bit afraid or uncertain, then you're not taking enough risk in your career to begin with. And that's what growth is all about. Fully agree. And the thing I would build on that is to say, in fact, without that humility, you don't have the basis on which to learn. I always think growth for any of us, it's really, it's difficult because it does require a unique combination. Enough humility to know you still have stuff to learn and enough confidence to believe that you can learn it. And I think that combination of I don't have it now, but I can do this is a differentiator. Let's talk about the reputation piece versus network. When you talk about reputation, we're living in an age where we all have social media profiles. We're all building brands. We're best living our best lives on LinkedIn or Facebook or probably now really more TikTok and Instagram. What does that reputation mean for somebody early in their career? Perfect. I think how I would I would explain that is you need it has a duality. You do need to be known. So there is that element of who am I connecting with and how good are the quality of those connections. And in our writing, one of the things we talk about is being what we call a positive networker, not somebody who creates one-sided, selfish relationships, but that genuinely creates connection. And we could talk more about that. But this idea about what do what does that network know about me? We are often reluctant to talk about our work, to talk about what it is that we actually delivered. And so we may be known, but we may not be known for the things that we want to uh, build our reputation on because those things 
take us where we want to go. So if I can just make a, a simple example, you know, if I want to be known, if I want a, a role ultimately that's, you know, head of a very strategic part of HR, then being known for 10 other things is not helpful. Like I might even have them in my brand. They may even show up on my LinkedIn. But how do I get people to know the thing about me that is important to what will make successful in my terms? And our, we have a diagnostic tool where people can do a survey, short survey, and it rates how people are on various aspects. And people think, you know, I know lots of people. And then you'll ask, well, what do they know about you? And people go, oh, they know my job title. Maybe they know the company but they may not know what I achieve and deliver, how I add value that they could use. Next, in episode eight, Alan Church, former SVP Global Talent Management at PepsiCo, goes deep on how to define potential. This was Future of HR's most downloaded podcast in 2022, so it's worth checking out if you missed it. Let's talk about potential. How do you define it? And why is it so hard for managers and organizations to align on the definition of it? Yeah, so potential is another one. It's That's uh, probably one of the few that's actually more complicated than talent management, right? As a definition. <laughs> but um, And you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time in this field. So again, early on when I took over, it was a bit of what's our definition? Let's standardize it, Alan. But it was it was more of an organizational definition, which I think is pretty common still today, this idea of people that can move two levels, right? But but what's it based on? So my question, as soon as I started asking that, I wanted to get underneath it. And you know, I, there's a model that I've created called the Leadership Potential Blueprint. I'll talk about it in a second. But I want to start JP with with the answer to your question in three ways. The the first I'd say is the reason it's so hard for people to define it is because they don't know what it is. They don't have any theory or background or anything to hang their hat on. So it's just a context issue. And they think performance is it, which, you know, if you, you're fact fiction kind of thing, performance is not potential, right? They're related, but it's not. But they hang their hat on performance first and they get heated about it because their high performers are important to them. The second reason, honestly, is psychological. I've seen so many people, when you start presenting an idea around potential, here's a framework, they start evaluating themselves. So there's this whole level of anxiety and self-reflection that's triggered by saying, hey, you know, a high potential is someone who's got great learning agility and motivated to be successful and has the right strategic thinking and great relationship skills. And they start sitting there saying, would I have been a high potential? Uh-oh. And that causes anxiety and then pushback and just resistance to the whole concept. <laughs> so I think that's part of it too. <laughs> and then the third, the third element, which I think will be helpful to your, your audience is there are really, I would argue, three kinds of potential that get talked about and confused, right? And the first one is what I call general potential or human potential, right? And it's kind of that growth mindset overall. That's the latent qualities and abilities that can be developed by anyone to be successful in life. Your kids have potential, right? So, so we're not talking about you know, general potential when you talk about you know, people and organizations. That's, that's the, everybody has that. And that's that OD mindset that you have to remember is important because if you don't acknowledge that, you tick people off and they tune out, right? So yeah, everybody's got potential. We should develop everybody. Great. Put that over here. Okay. Then there's leadership potential, which I think is the most 
common one that people think about and we talk about here. It's kind of the, you know, the standard version. And if you think about that, you can separate it. That's the skills, abilities, behaviors, knowledge that are really early predictors of future leadership effectiveness. So it's the combination of trait and behaviors and skill and knowledge. So it's not any one thing, but that when you see it, when you measure it, when you know what it is, and you can quantify it a bit, you can discuss that person's trajectory, right? You can see they are standing above, they are doing more. Those are why you think they can go two levels or three levels or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. So that's leadership potential. The other one that people confuse, and I think this is maybe helpful as well, is destination potential. And, you know, organizations really focus on leadership potential, destination potential. Destination potential is that more senior discussion, right? When you're talking succession and people get hung up with, well, how can an SVP that's two layers away from the CEO have potential? They're they're already, okay, yeah, maybe they're not a high potential in the standard sense, but they are either on the slate for a bigger job or they're not. Where is their final, you know, their, their destination from a destination from a career point of view? Are they going to be CFO? Are they going to be CMO of the company? CIO? Are they going to be a CEO candidate? Okay. Knowing that, let's look at their strengths and opportunities, their experiences, what they need to get to close gaps to get there, to get ready. That's the destination side. So you move away from this high potential problem at senior leadership. And it's more about targeted potential, if you will, right? So that's how I, I like to think about potential these days is those three buckets. And you try to walk through it with people before you get going so that they understand that you're not dismissing everybody in the room as having no potential, right? So that's the way I would, I would take it. The other complexity, JP, unfortunately, is there's a difference between, and we just wrote an article in Leadership Quarterly about this. So I don't know if you've seen it, but it's a little technical for some of the audience, but we did look at research on performance versus potential and indicators and how that works. But Anyone who sat in a talent review knows that there is this organization perception of potential. And I would call that designated potential. Hmm. So that's what the organization thinks of you. Whatever it's based on, doesn't matter. That's their call. And that may or may not actually reflect your capabilities, right? <laughs> you would like it to, you would hope it does, but it often doesn't. And it's that whole idea of, the breakfast meet and greet where you have food in your teeth and it ruins your with a CEO one day, right? Whatever it might be, or that one right. bad exchange in a meeting or that one bad presentation, you stood up for your annual operating plan and you got skewered, you didn't recover fast enough, you're over, right? That's sort of that designated potential. And, and part of you know what uh, Jay Conger and I wrote about in, in the High Potential Advantage book is how individuals, it's almost like a self-help for potential book, how individuals can do things to overcome that organizational designated potential perspective. So there's that piece of it. And then there's measured potential, right? And that's the two of them together is where I'd be pushing everyone who loves the nine box. I'm telling you the nine box you have doesn't work. Use this nine box that has both the perceived potential or the designated and the measured. In episode nine, Suzanne Myers, CHRO for Arcosa, dropped by to share her advice on being resilient and overcoming setbacks. This topic struck a chord with many people and is one of our top five episodes of the year. I also know even though you have had a very successful career, it always hasn't been perfect. You've had your own setbacks. And you recently I know gave a TED talk where you talked about helping people through career setbacks and coaching them through that. And I'd, I'd be interested in your advice for next generation HR leaders around 
who've had a career setback, how should they look at those experiences? I think everybody has setbacks as they're growing and as they move through their career journey. And I think many times, and especially earlier mid-career, it can become extremely frustrating and upsetting if something is kind of tilting or or not working quite the way you had wanted it to. But I can look back now and see there are many silver linings to some of those setbacks. And it's hard to sometimes see those silver linings, but they are there. And sometimes you have to have patience to really be to step away from those setbacks before you can really see that. But being I think being resilient is something something that I learned as a child. I didn't recognize that quite then, but I really do accredit some of my uh, childhood days and just being a competitive gymnast as preparing me for how to deal with some of these setbacks. I was a competitive gymnast for most of my youth and even up through high school. And being a gymnast is dealing with a lot of setbacks. I mean, you don't master a skill the very first attempt. So every time I learned a new skill and failed, right, you have to deal with, you know, self-coaching yourself and getting yourself prepared to try it again. And you fail at least a hundred times, if not more. (laughs) There's, There's a reason why you never see a gymnast's practice sessions on TV, because I bet it would be pretty tough to watch. That's a really good example. And also, I would just offer, we think things are career setbacks when actually it maybe it's the right path for you, right? It's a setback if you don't learn from it. You know, it's a setback if you let it defeat you. But a lot of times, it's really how you view the whatever happened to you. But you should know that there's some setbacks that happen, but that can be positive, right? It's all about growth and learning to your point of being a gymnast, right? We're all going to fall down the first time we do it. Absolutely. It takes a lot of courage to get back up after a setback. And setbacks can look and feel different to every person. I'm an optimistic person anyway, which I think helps. But I also always have a focus forward mindset, right? I don't let myself kind of live live in the past for too long. And that's maybe one of my strengths is being an optimist. Um, But it definitely, it's definitely something that we all experience. It's just, what do you do with the, what do you do with that personally? And how do you handle that? In episode 10, I was fortunate to sit down with one of the great minds in HR and talent, Jim Shanley. In our conversation, Jim shares his secrets on building a top team and how to raise the bar on how you assess talent. If you want to become known for identifying and selecting great talent, this is a conversation you won't want to miss. Leadership team, but you had a great team as well. And is there more that we should know about on how you built that team and maybe what made it different? Well, I, I had a philosophy that we had to impact the business. So in terms of recruiting the team, and this would would have been from talent acquisition to all of the COEs to part of HR ops to all of the leadership development learning. It was a big, big global team. We had to be very, very good. I was fortunate to have one of the best HR recruiters in the world, a woman named Sherry Weinstein. And I spent a lot of my time during the week interviewing candidates, whether or not we had jobs open or not. So I was always on the hunt for talent. The profile we were looking for, 
technically very deep in our field. They could flex between strategy and execution. So they could not only talk strategy, they could get things done. They were intellectually curious. They were smart and extremely driven. And again, I spent a lot of my time interviewing people around the world and was able to calibrate what's great in our field. So talk about what's your sourcing profile? What was the hiring profile behind that? Yeah, the sourcing and hiring profile, technically very deep. They could lead and follow. They could formulate strategy, but they could execute. Intellectually curious, smart, extremely driven, and they could be a team player. Usually my first screening interview over a cup of coffee, same few questions started off with, tell me about your business and the company strategy. I wanted to see just flat out, were they fluent in that? And then I'd usually ask them, can you share your numbers? And I knew it was going to be a bad interview when they started out with headcount, turnover, and engagement scores. And I knew it was going to be a really good interview when they talked about revenue, margin, net income, market cap, revenue per employee. That's what I got excited about. After we did the first screening interview, we'd bring them in and we had a very, this is my team, had a, we had a very structured process for interviewing. It was, it was tight. We were driving around technical expertise and content and the ability to execute. At the end of the day, we'd come together and if we thought we liked the person, We'd go around and we'd rate them on their technical competencies, their ability to influence tough executives. And if it looked like it was a go, somebody would on the team would say, let's do the five question test. And the five question test was this, and we had to be unanimous. This would be the team of whoever was interviewing. And the five questions were these, would she work for you? One of the philosophies we had was that if you join the team, we were growing and reorganizing so much, you could look to your left, look to your right, you might be reporting to that person. So mm. would the person be humble enough that they can then follow you? So would she work for you? The second question, would you work for her? Because we only wanted to hire people who everybody else said, I'll work for them. The third is, would you trust her with your corporate life? And it was on three pieces. Would you trust her to deliver on their commitments with high quality work? Would you trust her not to have a personal agenda? And would you trust her to represent the function in HR with integrity? Would you trust her with corporate life? Fourth, would you learn from her? Is she going to bring some expertise we don't have and we're going to get better? And then finally, would she be fun to work with? And when there was a unanimous yes to those five questions around the room, we knew it was a great hire. When there was not unanimous and we still hired the person, more often than not, we found a problem. Next in episode 11, James Fripp, Chief Equity Inclusion Officer at Young Brands, discusses how to create authentic relationships built on trust, or ART, art as he calls it. If you're in the equity and inclusion space, this is a must-listen episode. 
do you want to be right or do you want to be effective? Because at the end of the day, in order to be successful, you need to be effective. Now, in the example that I gave you in terms of the, the coach or mentor may not say things the right way, I may be right in that they didn't say it the right way. I can call that person out and say, look, I don't think that's appropriate. You said that, you know, in the, in the wrong way to me. I think that's offensive. You know, clearly you haven't dealt with anybody who's different than you. Okay. I don't know that I'm going to ever get that individual to support me going forward. And I also, even if they said they support me, I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to get them to be honest with me and tell me if I have any areas of opportunity by virtue of the way I reacted. So give people grace and understand where they're coming from. And then, and then let me make this last point because I think it's probably one of the most important things that I've ever, I, I, I now understand that I didn't before. And I think it's the key to a lot of things around equity, inclusion, and belonging and this relationship around people of color in organizations and how we can be successful and move things forward. And that is whenever you can, however you can, create art. Hmm. And what art is, is whenever you can, however you can, create authentic relationships that lead to trust. If you can do that, that grace that I just mentioned, because we have an authentic relationship that has led to trust, I trust that you have my best in mind. And so my immediate assumption when, I, when, we, have, when we have art, my immediate re- assumption is that you just didn't state it correctly, but I get what you mean. Versus if we don't have art, when you say something that didn't come across the right way, my immediate reaction may be to defend myself or to call you out. So if we have authentic relationships that lead to trust, we can typically talk through and solve anything. In episode 12, Ann Gotti, VP Global Talent Management at Bumble, shares her insights on what it takes to be a VP of talent and her advice for early career HR pros. Ann's an inspiring leader and you can learn a lot from her passion and wisdom. So what other tips would you have for someone who's like, I really wanted to get into talent or another specialty area in HR, but I don't have that degree and I'm not doing that job today? So it's interesting. I um, appreciated this question very much. I recently reread, I'm a bit of a slow learner on this, so I've read this book more than once. But have you ever read the book, The Advice Trap by Michael Bungay Steiner? I have. Yes. It's such a good book. And and I, he talks about the advice monster and I am like a walking advice monster, despite like many, many efforts to rehabilitate. I really struggle with over dispensing advice. And so I can offer a few things, but here's what I would, would do maybe instead. I think I would have people who think they want to go into talent management, get really clear on what it is, why they want to do that, what they think the work is, what it will require of them. And then are they willing to do that, you know, including what trade-offs it might come with? And then sit with that for a period of time and think about what is driving that transition and does it feel compelling enough to gate the complexities or the trade-offs that will inevitably accompany a pivot like that? What I can do, though, that I don't think is advice, so I totally think that I'm like still on the upside of this, of this <sighs> advice monster situation, is talk about the requirements. Like I think that the best talent 
management leaders are good at a few things. I don't think you can be good at this work if you're not good at these things. I think that they are voracious learners. Our field is steeped in science and data. And people who find that off-putting or tend to want to lead more on gut or or activate work and really bring it to life, but maybe don't enjoy kind of the um, the hard work of, which by the way, activating is also hard work, but the sort of grindy work of, of building something that's rooted in science, we've got the technology working right, et cetera, they won't actually really like the work at all. They've got to be someone who's willing to sort of continue to learn. The, the other skills I think are really important are those of a diagnostician. So much of the work that we do is about sensing what's going on in the organization and finding the simplest way to solve those problems. Not necessarily coming home from a conference and saying, the cool companies are all doing this, so we should all do this too. It's really understanding what is fit for purpose here and what are the simplest ways that I can enact that solution in a way to drive progress. I also think that People who are successful in this role are very comfortable standing alone when they need to, meaning they appreciate that sometimes when they're leading change, they're they're introducing things that are unfamiliar and perhaps uncomfortable for people. Concepts such as how to differentiate or how to navigate the level of transparency around performance and potential that's right for your organization. These are inherently uncomfortable things to lead. And so having grit as well as resiliency to navigate when people really are reluctant, and and they often are initially, especially to kind of step into some of those practices. Early in your career, and I didn't always get this right, you have everything to learn and nothing to prove. I think so many times early career talent come in and they just, they want to show you how good they are. I did. I was, I was all about like proving my value <laughs> to the dismay probably of everyone who was stuck working around me. I just, I wanted so much to give and to make a difference. And I think that can be a trap because so much of the power that we hold as developing executives is in our ability to bring out others, not in making sure everyone sees us, right? I didn't learn that as quickly as I could have. And I am grateful to be more aware of it today. It doesn't mean I get it right all the time. I think that that would be important, you know, really spending time kind of thinking through how am I taking the time every day to learn and get better, improve, and how am I making sure that I'm not spending my time proving who I already am and what I already deliver. It's not a knock on the importance of self-promotion or in being deliberate. And it's actually not at all. It's this idea that humility and openness and curiosity are really important and they're not always in long supply. Last but not least, is my conversation with Dr. Stephen Hunt on the future of work. In episode 15, Steve goes deep on what he calls the talent tectonic shifts in demographics and technology and how that'll shape the employee experience for years to come. I highly recommend listening to this entire episode, but also reading his book, which I believe is an instant classic in our field. And the two things that are playing out now, one, as they say, is we're living longer and having fewer children. And people are, people know this, but they don't realize how much. The average life expectancy in the United States over the last 100 years or so has increased by about 35 years. I mean, 35 years, that's not a little bit longer. And at the same time, the 
birth rates in the United States have gone down by about two thirds. If you were a woman born in 1900, you would have been expected to give birth to about 6.1 children statistically. And now I think it's like 1.8 or something. And so that's completely changing the population of our society, the makeup of it, which is in turn changing the labor market. So that's what I mean by talent tectonic forces. We'll get more. I can talk more about how much those are changing. I really want to talk a little more about digitalization because the demographic one is the fundamental source of a lot of the chronic labor shortages we're seeing. right now. Mm-hmm. But the digitalization one is even more fascinating. Let's talk more about digitalization and how that's impacting the workforce and just the trends you're seeing there. Yeah. So the demographic one is making companies have to be a lot better at sourcing talent. And also the issue is, I was saying the demographics, it's not that we don't have enough people, it's that we're not fully utilizing all the people we have. So how do we redesign jobs so that everyone can participate? And actually, this has been one of the benefits of like the move to hybrid work is allowing more people to work. I recently saw a statistic, employment of people with disabilities in the United States is the highest it has ever been. And that's largely attributed to removing the requirement that you commute every day as a job requirement. So that would be an example of how the demographic shifts. But the digitalization one is fascinating. Most people are aware of the breakdown of work into agricultural areas, and there was the industrial manufacturing age, and now we're in the knowledge and service age. And that's kind of how economists look at it based on the sectors of the economy people are working on. But if you look at the change in work from a psychology perspective, the very purpose of why we work has changed. You know, the reason for working. 200 years ago, the main reason people worked was to grow and distribute food so we didn't die. I kind of joke, talk about meaningful work. (laughs) Then you had the Industrial Revolution. And what happened there is it made us much more effective at growing and distributing food. So a lot of people shifted from growing food to keep us alive to making things to make us comfortable. Cars, you know, clothes, things like that. Now with digitalization, the move to automation, the bulk of jobs now are what are called service or knowledge jobs. And what is the purpose of a service job? It's to exceed someone's expectations. It's to make people feel good about whatever it is you're providing to them, whether that's a service or a product. Even like, I'll I'll take the auto manufacturing industry. One of the customers I work with makes cars. And they say, well, we don't think of ourselves as a car manufacturer. We're a transportation service provider, which sounds kind of like wonky consulting. But -hmm. it's actually true because they said, look, if all people were doing was buying the ability to get from point A to point B, they wouldn't spend the money on our cars. We have to give them this delightful experience, ego enhancing, whatever. Well, if you want, if you're trying to like make people feel good about what you're doing for them, you have to be empathetic. You have to be creative. At the same time, technology is changing the way we deliver things. It's changing consumer preferences. It's changing supply chains. So it's changing how we need to deliver these adapt- adaptable. So now what we need employees to do is we need employees to be caring, collaborative, creative, and The thing is, you can't do those things if you feel exhausted, burned out, or miserable. It's Psychologically, there's a concept called emotional labor, which you're probably familiar with, which is the physical and mental toll of trying to act externally differently from how you feel internally. And it's so when you look at the way work is changing here, most people talk about employee experience and they think about, oh, it's about engagement and retention. Yeah, that's more important than it used to be because of the demographic changes. If people, especially skilled employees, have a crappy job, they won't stick around. They're three clicks on Google from another job. Right. But 
the far more profound change is employees literally can't do what companies want them to do if they're having a miserable experience at work. You can't be creative, caring, and collaborative to feel exhausted or exploited. And even like, you know, I, I present on this. Once I was presenting, and I always used to use an example of like, look, you can shovel coal and feel like crap. You can't provide caring customer service and feel like crap. It's not sustainable. And one of the customers came up to me afterwards and said, well, actually, you know, I work for a mining company and you can't shovel coal anymore and feel like crap. That used to be true, but now it's highly sophisticated machinery. And in fact, if people are exhausted or born out, there are safety risk. And even in coal mining jobs, employee experience is absolutely critical. And it's not just about retention. It's about people can't do what we want to do if we don't provide them a more effective experience at work. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Future of HR podcast. We had 15 amazing HR executives and thought leaders in the podcast in 2022. And my thanks to each and every one of them. And in 2023, you can expect that we will keep the bar high and bring other forward-looking HR leaders and experts on to share their career experiences and their insights on where the field is going. As always, you can go to futureofhr.com to view all of our past episodes and learn more about our mission to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. And if you're enjoying Future of HR, be sure to subscribe and please help us spread the word to other next-gen HR leaders. We'll be back in 2023 with Justin Hirsch, Chief Executive Officer and HR Exec Search Lead at JobPlex, which is DHR's Emerging Leader Search Services. Justin's one of the top HR executive recruiters in the business. And if you want to understand the do's and don'ts of working with an executive recruiter, or even partner with one to help you get a new job in 2023, this is a conversation you won't want to miss. Thanks again for listening to the future of HR and being part of our community.